Thank you for listening to the only podcast dedicated to the business of pharmacy. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Show. You can find all of our episodes at pharmacypodcast.com. Hi, this is John Nasta of Nasta Lab, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Okay, Pharmacy Podcast listeners, uh, this is a absolute treat for me. Uh, this man is really a uh, the mover and shaker in the world of digital health, and he's very humble. So when I nicknamed him the godfather of digital health, um, he took it in stride and laughed it off, but he continues to bring incredible amounts of content, understanding, focus to what digital health truly means. Uh, rather than being buzzed, but actually getting it done to the world of our healthcare system. I want to welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast, John Nasta. How are you this morning, John? I'm doing great, Todd. Maybe I should say, take the wearable, leave the cannolis, or or something like that. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. It's always a pleasure to to, to come on. You you are leading the charge also in in your ability to, to motivate probably one of the most important forces in the healthcare arena, the pharmacy is essential. So, so it's a pleasure to be on and, and helping you change the world too. Thank you so much. I've been following you. Um, I'm a stalker of, of John Nasta and Nasta Labs and what you guys are doing. I learn a lot from uh, the, the trailblazing that you're, that you're making throughout the world actually. And, and, and that, that, there's an exclamation point in the end of that, that sentence because you have been throughout the world. So bring our listeners up to date a little bit about your background, uh, Nasta Labs, and what you've been working on lately. Sure. Um, well, Nasta Lab is basically a digital health think tank that focuses on the strategic and creative articulation of what digital health means to a variety of companies. So we're working with big multinational companies that have direct relationships to health, uh, working with companies that may be tangentially related to health, let's say uh, nutrition companies, as well as uh, smaller startups. And our job is help, helping them understand what digital health means, stratifying their audience, building out position, and building core strategies. So um, what our job is to make digital health stick, if you will. And one of the more interesting initiatives that I'm working on that we were talking about earlier is the notion of the OB world phone. And OB is a company founded by John Scully, uh, the John Scully. And its uh, mission is two things. One is to provide an inexpensive smartphone to the developing world and to do it in the context of what John Scully calls the noble pursuit or the noble cause. So um, one of the things we'll talk about a little bit later with you is the idea of, of making digital health actually work in the context of, let's say, drug development. And part of that is making it work in the context of a good environment. So the OB smartphone is being launched in the developing world where there is a pressing and urgent need for changes in healthcare from simple fundamental information about wellness to diagnostic techniques around cancer and those things. So we are developing a health platform right on the OB phone because in today's world, the reality is it's food, water, shelter, phone. 
And the phone is the conduit, the connectivity that brings a variety of empowering elements to people. A a classic example is banking. In in Africa, about 48% of banking is actually done on the smartphone. So it's an extraordinarily important initiative. And what I think is the magic here is that we'll see digital health tested in an environment where it's extraordinarily needed. And I think that may be a real proof point for a variety of initiatives. So, so that's what's sort of on my radar and um, something that I think is going to be um, very, very important. I was listening to one of your presentations via YouTube, and I'll, and I'll make sure that we put the links mm-hmm. to some of your, um, your overviews, presentations. And I don't know if you were in Germany or Sweden, but that's actually where I heard you first say, you know, uh, shelter, food, uh, water, uh, phone. And it really brought to light the importance of our. Um, we take it for granted. I'm, I'm, you know, but it's so true. It's, it's the one device that we're all so interlinked with for so many facets of our, of our being. And Todd, I mean, the interesting point is that that the smartphone was born in the year 2007. So this is an example that people see all the time, but they don't make the connection to. And this is this notion of exponential growth or exponential change. We're seeing fundamental changes in our, in our world in just a few short years. So when we talk about exponential change in medicine and all these evolving trends, people often sort of shrug their shoulders and they say, oh, well, that's, that's science fiction. But it's important that we recognize that that exponential trajectory has to be interpreted along that curve. And what we're seeing with a lot of people is that that curve at, at present day can be extrapolated along a line. And that's the old model. That's the traditional pharma model that, that we sort of have a linear drug development path. But if you follow that linear path, even based upon present day, the trajectory, according to recent growth, you end up with bad predictions. And, and that, that's a problem. The other side of the coin, when you talked about my talk in Sweden, Sweden is a really interesting company, because, a country, because it has about 10,000 people. And it's a very interesting size for digital health to take a foothold. But it's almost opposite or antithetical to the developing world because Sweden is a highly developed country with, with highly uh, engaged technology and technology partners. So their example is really to kind of embrace it from a very different perspective. But, um, you know, it's important to recognize that we are changing at an exponential level. And the smartphone is really the classic example of how rapid those changes are coming. So that's the Obi World Phone Project, and I'm going to be doing some Googling after um, our interview just to learn more about that. But how interesting to build a smartphone that's affordable so that we can get it into the hands of uh, everyone possible. And, you know, the interesting thing, Todd, is that with respect to Obi, it is world-class technology at a developing world price point. You know, uh, in America, traditionally, you know, we buy, we buy our phone and that cost is buried into the contract. So we don't really feel the pain. Um, it's, it's taken out month by month in many instances and linked to a plan. Um, in many countries, people buy the phone outright. And the cost of, a, of an 
iPhone of a of a high end smartphone is is around eight hundred dollars. It's a ex- very expensive proposition. So the price point of Obi is is somewhere between one and two hundred dollars. So it's a very different price point. But what the magic of John Scully and his team is is to have it designed in Silicon Valley, so you get the panache and that feeling of of sophistication, but have it outsourced to a variety of vendors to maximize the quality that you're receiving from 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 Dolby Sound to the screen, to the Gorilla Glass, to a dual SIM card dynamic, a lot of interesting things. So um, the OB phone is, is not only interesting and cool, I think it's fundamentally important. You know, so that's the device. Now we need um, the interaction. We need the data. We need to be able to collect that data. We need to be able to make sense of that data. You set the table for our conversation today, which is... Um, kind of uh, built upon a concept that I started developing about a month and a half ago when I read an article by a gentleman that you happen to know who's deep into the innovation of medicine, and he mentions digital health in an article that he wrote on Forbes. His name is David Shaywitz, and he wrote an article back in May that was titled, Why Digital Health Has Not Yet Transformed Pharmaceutical Drug Development, and Really, I had a concept I started kind of putting together of, um, of a piece that I'd very much like to run past you and get your feedback on, and that is, you know, pharma seems like they've been, I don't want to say the word reluctant, but almost playing catch-up with so many other industry stakeholders inside and outside healthcare in leveraging and adopting and really using digital health to the advantage of development and before you start developing you obviously need to start collecting uh, different data from different ways of collecting and the internet of things and your mobile phone and wearables and all these things that I've talked to Dr. Tim Ungst about who writes nothing but um, about how pharmacists leveraging technology and he wrote um, one of his points was by providing greater insight into patients actual experiences of disease collection of digital health data, uh, outcomes will reveal important differentiating features of new therapeutics or point of out of aspects of illness that new medicines ought to attack. And I was like, wow. So my question to you is, where is that point of collection of that data ongoing and consistent so that pharmaceutical companies can start collecting, measuring, and um and in leveraging what is digital health? So that's a that's a colossal question. There's so many points of entry. Let's let's back up and kind of take a look at the pharmaceutical industry, which we know by design is conservative. Exactly. Um, but you know, let's let's look at look at at trends outside of the healthcare life science industry. You know, the the world's largest taxi company owns no vehicles. Does that make any sense to you? It's called Uber. Right. You know, the world's most popular media owner creates no content. That's called Facebook. You know, the most valuable retailer in the world has no in- inventory, and that's Alibaba. And, and it goes on and on. And, and, you know, the world's largest accommodator, the largest hotel chain, owns no real estate, and that's Airbnb. So these changes are surrounding the pharmaceutical industry, which is both sort of conservative by design 
but also conservative by inertia. And I, I think that, that that's, you know, one of the biggest issues facing some of the more traditional models of development. So, so you ask, where do we collect the data? I, I think that there's two ways of looking at this issue. And, and you know, this is, a, this is probably five podcasts in one, Todd. But <laughs> the idea to me is to look outside in and inside out. And outside in is what you're talking about. Let's do the inside out first. When we look at drug development today, we look at large multi-center clinical trials. That sort of defines the state of the industry and their large population-based studies. And we find that oftentimes when you try to find a drug that works for large population-based studies, you're forcing to the mean, if you will. You're looking for that one antihypertensive drug that works in a, in a broad cohort, usually of males, by the way. Or we're looking for that cancer drug that works to treat um, first-line CLL or metastatic breast cancer or whatever. And what we're finding is that that's not necessarily the model, that we could begin to profile patients on a, on a cellular level, on a genomic level, and begin to match drugs and drug development to that sub-cohort. So, so that's, that's part of the dynamic for me. And what we may find is a greater fragmentation of, of drugs that are uniquely suited, or drug combinations that are uniquely suited to, um, to particular patients who have a specific genomic expression. I mean, oncology is a clear, a clear example of this, where this trend has, has been discovered and is emerging. But I wonder if we can flip it on its head and say, should drug development look at specific cohorts of patients. And, and there's a company, one of my favorite companies is Human Longevity. And Human Longevity was founded by Craig Venter, Peter Diamandis, and Robert Herreri, three giants in the industry of medicine. Ventner first got to sequence the human genome, um, and, and Diamandis is a great voice in the digital health and the, and the um, exponential growth movement. And, and Bob Herreri is an MD-PhD fighter pilot, rock star innovator um, out of the life science industry, particularly um, uh, cytogen. But anyway, so that's, that's half the story, right? Can we change it to look at the nature of drug development? Now, the other side of the coin that, that you ask is, where do we look? How do we find these interesting connections. I think that a lot of people, when they're sort of told about th this interesting sort of connection between different sort of points of interest, they shrug their shoulders and they say, well, yeah, that's kind of interesting, but I don't get it. And so I want to put forth a, a, a proposition to you about what I think big data is. And big data is this horrible catchphrase. You know, it's I'm sure you hear, you know, every other sentence people talk about big data. Right. You know, you, you almost have to say it in a, in a job interview or when you're giving a speech, um, you know, it's big data. But people, again, shrug their shoulders and say, what the heck are you talking about? So, so let's, let's take a step back. I believe that big data is the third window into humanity. And what I mean by that is the first window was the telescope. And that telescope allowed us to see a world that was absolutely amazing. And it actually 
flipped everything upside down. And as Copernicus taught us, that first insight was greeted not as an innovation, but as a blasphemy. So that's the first lesson to be learned for digital health. The second um, window into humanity was the microscope. How we saw something that was amazingly small and defined a whole world to us, whether that be uh, pathogens and the disease model or the uh, microbiome that lives in our gut. And the third window, and this is the important distinction for me, is I believe will be big data. That big data will present to us profound interconnectivity from aspects of clinical care and medicine to aspects of the human condition and engagement. So I think that's going to be a, a big deal. So that's the other side of the coin for me. And, and there are going to be nodes of, of, of activity that will be important here from the house, you know, the house you live in. And, and that's going to be interesting because the number of times you open and close your refrigerator times the number of times or steps you take on your carpet that is now full of sensors to the length of time you spend in bed to the um, analysis the scan does when you look in the mirror in the morning to the rich information that is flushed down the toilet every day. These will create an amazing opportunity for us to look at and evaluate things. And the, a very simple example is taking the carpet in your house and making that into a tool to measure gait, gait and step that can be very, very interesting for patients who have, let's say, Parkinson's disease, where you want to watch gait and tremor as a tool. And, and I think that the hub around some of this is certainly going to be the pharmacy. Because as I've said on your show before, and one of my all-time favorite quotes is, my mother had 10 doctors, but she only had one pharmacist. <laughs> and that's, that is this this monolithic point through which all these pieces of information can flow, including drug therapy and drug development. So, I mean, that's kind of a long-winded perspective, and I know that's, that's a 30,000-foot view. Right, and I think the trust factor is huge because there's data collection points that you mentioned, your refrigerator, the carpet, getting out of bed, the mirror, that once that technology resides there, uh, humans will forget about it. They'll just go along. However, in in this point of time that we're in right now, if you if you almost I don't want to use the word scare, but sometimes that's the case with patients about what you're collecting, how you're collecting it. If you're to ask a patient to become part of a research finding based on their disease state or their case or what they're going through and it's presented to them by, obviously, their physician, but then in partnership with the pharmacist that they trust, I think it's much better accepted so that pharma can actually start collecting some of the data that they're looking for to move forward in, in, in drug development, where the technology also comes in. Imagine you walking into your community pharmacy with a prescription that you've come back to them for uh, a multitude of times, even if that drug were, say, Lipitor, and you present it, and then all of a sudden, this pharmacist that you know, his name's Chuck, he looks across the the, the table, the, the bench, and says, you know, hey, Todd, uh, come over here, I want to talk to you about something. You know, hey, there's a research out there about, you know, the effects of Lipitor, long-term effects. You've been on this for, you know, X number of years. 
uh, would you like to be part of this? And then I'll help you with, you know, the research. You'll stop back in and see me, you know, once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is. And oh, by the way, we're going to utilize this telemedicine system to answer some questions or you're going to put this wearable on or you're going to embed this app onto your phone and here's how to use it. Now that pharmacist is 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 that collection point of all of these needs for big data, but it's done with a tremendous amount of respect and trust. And if a pharma rep comes up to me or my pharmacist comes up to me, not to pick on pharma reps of course, who am I trusting, you know, in in this, you know, evolution of data collection? Yeah, no, I think that I think that the the pharmacist has always been sort of the the glue, sort of the connective tissue around around that. And you know, and to look at it from the other perspective, you may have multiple physicians, multiple multiple sort of clinical points of influence, but it all kind of funnels through the pharmacist. And to me, that's a really interesting opportunity for pharma to even look at trial selection through the pharmacist and to be able to say, well, here's a person who's on on X drug or, or here's a patient who's on a combination therapy or here's a person that has a certain sort of social engagement that I think might be interesting. So I think that's another, another tool to sort of leverage drug development in the context of the trial. And those five sectors of pharmacy, we have health system pharmacy, uh, compounding pharmacy, community, institutional, and, um, and specialty. And mm-hmm. I definitely see specialty becoming involved in this because their touch point with their, um, with their patient, with the manufacturer, um, is so intertwined already based on how specialty pharmacy went from uh, A to now, you know, down the road to Z. It, it's, it's been completely already accepting of collection points. However, the place where specialty pharmacy may be missing out on some of the patient touches Mm-hmm. is most of the interaction with patients, even though those patients trust their specialty pharmacy and have a very good relationship. I've been in call centers, John, where I've seen um, the actual interaction between a call center uh, customer service agent at a specialty pharmacy and an actual call that they had with one of their uh, beloved patients. And this woman knew their children's names. They knew their dog. They knew what they were going through. They knew the questions to ask. And it was a real, it was a true relationship. It wasn't just a call center. It was amazing. However, sometimes you need to have that physical touch where you're actually going to the, you know, to the place to the, to the um, to the health destination per se, and actually um, engaging a pharmacist in person. Institutional is those long-term care uh, closed door uh, situations where you have a assisted living centers, long-term care centers, skilled yeah. centers. That's prime areas for this collection of data. Compounding, you know, it it it's it's not as compounders are usually doing compounding sometimes for a different pharmacy, or they're doing it behind the scenes and they don't have as much uh, patient touch. Um, but that community pharmacist reaching out to all of these stakeholders to, to kind of be that collection point is something that I'd, I'd love to see um, Big Pharma kind of um, take a shot at and, and see if it isn't something, maybe they're already doing it, we don't even know, but not, nonetheless, I'd love to see it uh, go into a much bigger scale. You know what, I mean, Todd, 
I think that the answer has got to come not only from pharma, but I think the pharmacy community can step up and take an active role in terms of establishing certain trends, establishing pieces of information or methodologies, and help push that in the direction of pharma. Because one of my, my insights is that pharma is searching for meaning, and they're really looking to kind of understand the new reality of medicine and digital health. And I think they, they would be open to finding partnerships with the, uh, with, the, with the pharmacy community. You know, I've always said that the pharmacist is oftentimes her worst enemy. And that, that to a certain degree, there's a bit of an inferiority complex here. Uh, sometimes rightfully so, sometimes completely wrong. And so I, I agree with you 100%. So I, I think that, you know, my challenge would be to have the pharmacy community step up, take a look at some of these initiatives, and don't wait for pharma to come knocking on the door. And do it the other way around. Right. Exactly. And it's interesting how you, out, you, 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 you laid out the um, evolution and the innovation of humankind and how we you know, invented the telescope. We looked outward. Then we invented the microscope. We looked inward. And now we need to tap into big data, which is both sides of that. It's outward sure. and inward. And um, using healthcare provider assistance, who, by the way, is in one of the biggest fluxes of transformation ever, which is the pharmacist. They're, they're going through this immense amount of transformation because of the way payment is happening and we're on the eve yep. of, of getting national provider status in the United States and yeah. so much is happening. So rather than standing around and waiting for all of these things to change and be, and be led, why not lead? Because pharmacy is led completely. So other completely. And, and Todd, you know, back in the old days, it used to be that, that pharmacy was defined by a sense of control. Uh, not only did the pharmacist control the pills, if you will, but largely their, their profession or their, you know, their, it was a control. It was about, it was about the, the pharmaceutical company delivering a product, and it was a very linear kind of method. They were the dispenser of an innovation that came from pharma that was mediated by a physician. You know what I'm talking about here? Yes. Now, today, the nature of control is shifting to a collaborative environment. So control is moving to collaboration. And any place you look, you see this sense of collaboration. Patients want to know about their data. They want to know about their care. They want to check their blood pressure. They want to be able to own their data. They want genomic analysis. So I think that we're really changing that office-based environment, hospital environment, um, clinic environment, as well as a pharmacy environment to less of boxes with walls to an open environment that's defined more like the notion of a collaboratory. So I don't think that you should look at the pharmacy, especially a traditional retail pharmacy, as a spot where the walls come up and then that's gone. That's an extension of the hospital. It's an extension of the clinical practice. It's an extension of the pharmaceutical industry. And I think the notion of the collaboratory, having pharmacy as one of those fundamental pillars, is essential for a model of success. 
That's a great way of putting it. And why wait around for these organizations to come to pharmacy when pharmacy has all of the touch points, has the relationships, has the ability to leverage the technology, uh, turn around and approach um, you know the other stakeholders and, and get them involved in a model that pharmacy creates. Exactly. You guys, you, guys, you guys have the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> no, you, you really do because you, you have this, you know, this fundamental interface with the consumer that you, you've always been the consummate collaborators. There's always been that, that engagement, that discussion from, from what should I take for this cough that I have or, you know, how do I, how do I manage a complex compounding problem, you know? So it's, you've been through the, the gamut. Of development, and, and interestingly, when you talk about the specialty pharmacy and, and compounding and, and all that kind of stuff, it's almost as if those organizations are becoming more like a pharmaceutical company in some ways, as they as they develop and manufacture things, albeit not a, a unique compound, but in the context of compounding. So it's an interesting kind of thought. Well, John, I am so excited you've come back to the show. I want you to definitely return with some of the concepts and things that you're doing in the um, in the intersphere as well as our world at large and and how you're tapped into so many facets of um, what it is to marry digital health with true health care and, and make it usable um, rather than just being conceptual. And that's exactly what you're doing. Um, what are you, what's up next for, for Nasta Labs and John Nasta? Well, let's talk about the broad strategy because you touched on it. You know, digital health is is to many people a fad, and it's 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 sort of defined by the wearables and the activity trackers and all that nonsense. And and while that is interesting and an important evolution, the mission of Nasta Lab is to move from from an athletic option to a clinical imperative, and that that that's kind of the magic because. Let's face it, the 65-year-old guy with metabolic syndrome sitting on the couch watching the football game is probably not going to get up and magically become well based upon uh, a wrist-worn activity tracker. But if we could somehow provide essential clinical information about uh, 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 an impending clinical catastrophe or some things that, that move people to action, that will light a fire under digital health and it will make things make things more powerful so that's what what we've been doing and we've been working with a variety of pharmaceutical companies of consumer companies of uh you know a variety of companies to help empower innovation through good strategic thinking and good communication because let's face it in the final analysis sometimes having a great product but not being able to communicate it is like winking in the dark you know you're doing it but no one else does (laughs) So during our first interview, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. If you're a pharmacy industry association like Armada, who focuses on specialty, the ASHP, um, the health system pharmacist organizations, the ASCP, who focuses on our senior care, or the NCPA, and you're listening to this show, reach out to Nasta Lab, reach out to John Nasta, JJ Nasta at gmail.com. I'll put your contact information down below. You got to get this. Let's not forget about Twitter. Twitter, exactly. That's right. That's, that's how that's, I met you. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a lot of action on Twitter. It's, it's the best listening tool. If, even if you have nothing to say, get on Twitter, follow some people, do some searches, and, and you'll find a wealth of information. 
That's how I found you, John. That's how you became the digital uh, health godfather to me. All right, John, thank you so much for Always coming a pleasure, Tom. back. It's an open invitation to to listen to your to your thoughts and to your uh, your thought leadership into this crazy industry that we're all part of. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We were talking with John Nasta of Nasta Lab. You can find more information about John Nasta as a digital health philosopher at nastalab.com. And if you are a pharmaceutical manufacturer or a pharmaceutical industry expert that would like to expand the conversation about pharmacy, digital health, and big pharma, please contact the show at publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And we thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Show. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse.